Let's just bow our heads as we come to God's word this morning. Father, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that it's living and active, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, Lord, that uh, it, you fulfill your purposes for it each and every time it's cracked open, Lord, as your word promises. Uh, this morning, I pray that you would um, bring to light what you want brought to light uh, for our hearts and lives this morning. And uh, any words that are just mine, Father, that you would uh, toss them away, Father. pray that you would uh, just indwell our presence here this morning. Your name, amen. So hey, as we come to the book of Philippians, um, Philippians has maybe a little bit of a different feel than a lot of Paul's letters. Um, there isn't so much that, uh, that idea of uh, correction and rebuke that we often see in Paul's letters. Often he's dealing with a doctrinal issue or false teachers or affirming his apostleship or or anything like that, but we don't really see that so much in the book of Philippians. If you've got your thumb in Acts chapter 15, you'll kind of see how the Philippian church was birthed. Um, you probably remember the story well. Paul had it in his mind that he was going to go to Asia. He wanted to, they, were, they had been delivering the message that the Jerusalem council had, and they delivered that to establish churches, and then Paul wanted to go on and share the gospel into Asia. But the Spirit of the Lord kept him from doing that. And in a, in a dream or a vision, he had a, he seen a man calling to come to Macedonia. And Paul followed. He went, he went to Macedonia, which actually is Europe, southern Europe. It's uh, where Philippi is. Macedonia is kind of like just south of Bulgaria, if you were to look on a map today. Um, it's interesting. Paul... By following that call and going to Macedonia, he brought the gospel to the Western world. Uh, the Lord used that to, to develop how our lives are. The, 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 the church we see has kind of grown from Europe and our Western civilization, and it's, the Lord ordained it that way, but it was Paul's missionary journey to Macedonia that started it. And we know what happened there fairly well. He went down and, and to see if there's any worshipers of God there. There was no synagogue, so there weren't really any Jews there. Uh, he went down by the river, and there was a worshiper of God there by the name of Lydia. She was a lady who sold purple. The Lord opened her heart. Paul shared the gospel, and she became the first European convert. Shortly thereafter, there's a demon-possessed girl and she's been making a lot of money for her, her masters, telling people's fortunes and stuff. And Paul cast the demon out. And the owners of this girl, she was a slave, they're upset and they grab Paul and they bring him to the local judges and magistrate and they throw him in prison. And this is the story that we really know well. He's in prison. He's been beaten. Paul and Silas are in prison. And what are they doing? I, I know what I would do. If I, if I was in prison, I'd probably be upset. But what does Paul and Silas do? They're praising the Lord in the middle of the night. We know the story well. At around midnight, they were singing to the Lord, and the other prisoners were listening. And a great earthquake came and split the prison wide open, broke them out of their stocks. And rather than running and fleeing, they stayed. When the, when the jailer came out, he was ready to, to, to throw himself on his sword, commit suicide. Back in the Roman culture, if you were a jailkeeper and your guys got out, the punishment that would have been inflicted on them would be inflicted on you. So he's thinking, I lost my whole jail worth of guys. At least a half of them are probably, you know, convicted to, you know, torture. The other half are probably convicted to death. 
I'm going to be tortured and then killed. So he feared he'd commit suicide. But what does Paul and Silas say? Don't do it. And the jailer kneels down and he says, what must I do to be saved? That great question that we all either have asked or maybe need to ask. What must I do to be saved? And Paul answers in verse, uh, he, he answers them and says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The, the Philippian jailer put his trust in Jesus. His household put his trust in Jesus. And Paul and Silas are freed. So that's kind of the birthing of what ha- kind of happened at the beginning of the Philippian church. This happened somewhere, people figure, 48 to 52 A.D. So when we get to the book of Philippians, it's probably about 10 years later. Uh, most scholars put the date about 62 or 63 A.D. Paul's been cornered by the Jews. Uh, he's now appealed to Caesar. He's being held under house arrest in Rome. And the Philippian church has sent a gift to him, probably a monetary gift. Uh, you know, he's under house arrest. He's going to have some costs incurred. So they've, they've been taking care of him. This letter is really, there's a lot of thanksgiving and joy that Paul's writing about. He's thanking them for the gift he's given. Also, the guy who delivered the gift got really sick. Um, we'll see it in later chapters. And he's reporting that he's done well. So let's actually get into Philippians. Verse 1 starts out with a kind of a different introduction than Paul normally introduces himself with. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, depending on what translation you have, it may say bondservant. In your ESV, there's a little footnote there. It says bondservant or slaves. If you've been kicking around the church for a while, you've heard the word bondservant. You've heard the word doulos, the Greek word behind it. And the idea is a slave by choice. If we go back to Hebrew law, you go back to Exodus 21, there's rules about slaves. If you were a Hebrew master, you could, you could, you could, back then you could own someone. You could have them as your slave. And after six years of service, in the seventh year, you were to release them. But, this is what it says. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years. In the seventh, he shall go free, out free for nothing. If he comes in single... He shall go out single. If he comes in married, his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be the masters, and he shall go out alone. Kind of brutal. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him and he shall put, <clears throat> bring him to the door or the doorpost, his master shall bore an ear through a uh, hole through his ear with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. The idea of the bond servant is that is a servant by choice, a servant out of love, not out of compulsion. That's the idea that that you'd become a bond servant because you actually you loved your master, you loved the family that your masters provided you. Paul, rather than than as he often does, establishing his apostleship, says uh, normally often they'll say Paul an apostle asserting his authority, he's, he's saying, here I am, a servant. I'm a servant. I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve the church. I'm here to serve Christ Jesus. I think there's, a, there's an interesting other parallel to, or, or observation about the idea of servanthood. The only way that a servant is useful 
is if they've grown into maturity. As an infant, we don't really have the capacity to produce, so to speak. As an infant, we are reliant on our parents for milk or maybe spoon-fed for training, for growing up. As Paul calls himself a servant or a bond servant, a servant by choice, there's, there's a connotation that servant is someone who can produce fruit, someone who is doing the work of the gospel, someone who's working, someone who's able to handle solid food and maturity. And he, the writer of, of Hebrews addresses the issue of being stagnant in our faith, stagnant in infancy. It says, for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need, but you need someone again to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He's probably thinking, like, what's up with you guys? You guys still only need milk. You should be on solid food. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish from good and evil. I think there's an idea that Paul's saying, I am modeling servanthood. I'm modeling fruitfulness. I'm modeling moving from an infancy to an adult as usefulness. I find the observation also of Paul mentions he's not on his own. It's Paul and Timothy. They're co-bond servants together. You know, it's a three-strand cord. In Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, two are better for one because they give a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm? Although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Paul was not an island. He knew he needed to be with others in the ministry. Even Jesus, when he sent his apostles out, he sent them out two by two. Mark chapter 7. Sent them out two by two. Gave them power. The idea for us to help each other out, we're not to be islands. And the idea of the three-strand cord, brother, brother, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you, if you take a couple pieces of twine and weave them together, man, when you start weaving them into that three-strand cord, the strength just increases, and they in, become interwoven. And as, as, as it interweaves, the weight and pressure is shared. It's shared equally. We're not to be islands. We're not to be islands. The other thing is, Timothy wasn't ashamed to be associated with this, neither were the Philippians for that matter, with this prisoner. Paul was a prisoner. He was convicted under house arrest. Probably not a real guy you'd want to put on your resume. You know, oh yeah, here's, uh, here's my good buddy, my pastor, my mentor in prison. But Timothy wasn't ashamed. Wasn't ashamed of Paul. Wasn't ashamed of the gospel. So when we see then who the letter's written to. It says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. You know, sometimes the word saint is kind of used kind of rough in our culture, I think. Uh, We can blame that on many different ideas. But the idea of a saint is one that's set apart, one that's holy. You know, the the word that's used for saint is translated 161 times as holy and only 61 times as saints. So the idea is being set apart, 
I ask myself, sainthood, you know, to call someone a saint, that sounds kind of weird, or it sounds like a hierarchy or something like this, doesn't it? But a saint is not a deceased person who serves as a guardian angel. It's not someone who's lived, lived an exceptionally moral life. It's not someone of heroic virtue or someone who's, prepared, who's performed two or more verifiable miracles after they've gone to be with the Lord. It's not someone who's been approved by a board of theologians. It's not someone who's on a list made of man. But what it is, is it's anyone whose name is on God's list. Anyone who is living or has gone to be with the Lord who's on God's list. Look at what it says to all the saints in Christ Jesus. The precursor to sainthood is being in Christ. Being a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we probably know it well. We've heard it many times. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The idea of we've been changed, our heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh has been put in by Jesus Christ himself. When we're in Christ Jesus, we are saints. It's crazy to think that God uses the low and despised things in the world gives us new hearts in Christ Jesus and calls us saints. I know it sounds really weird if someone says Saint Brian. Right, Brian? (laughs) But the reality is, is we are all co-saints in Christ Jesus if we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Simply someone who is a new creation in Christ Jesus. Someone set apart for God. Someone who's been made holy. Not holy in our own selves, but has been made holy. So that, as in 1 Corinthians um, 1 verse 31, so that is written, "Let let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Our boast is only to be in the Lord because he has brought us, crossed us over from death unto life. Idea of being a saint. Set apart, holy. We also see that the Philippian church, as Paul was addressing it, they, they must have had some level of maturity. If we go back into 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you'll see that Paul makes, makes reference to the Macedonian church that's helped him out financially, he's given gifts. There, there's this idea that, that this church is a pretty mature church. And also, he says, to with the overseers and deacons, they had some structure, they had some order. Uh, we know overseers, it's that word bishop or elder or pastor, and deacons, kind of the people who do the hands-on work at the church, right? Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, that unmerited favor we don't deserve, and the typical Hebrew salutation, peace, shalom. Remember, we can never have shalom if we haven't received the grace Jesus Christ. As we hit verse 3, we see that Paul kind of starts now to get into, <clears throat> excuse me, his prayer and thanksgiving. It says, I thank my God in all my rem- remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for all of you making my joy, uh, may, sorry, let me try that again. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, this is the first time we see the word joy or rejoice. As, you, as we go through the book of Philippians, you'll see that joy or rejoice is used a dozen times in this book. Paul has joy 
But we, we ask, you got to ask yourself, so what brings Paul joy? He's in prison. He's locked up. Uh, yeah, he's received a monetary gift. That might give a little bit of a pick-me-up, a little bit of a, oh, thank you, Lord, that you've made my provisions. But what really brings joy? What brings joy to one's heart? Where's Paul finding his joy when he talks about these, these Philippians? I think it's important that he talks about why. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Partnership can also be known as fellowship. We've, same thing, if we've been kicking around the church for a while, we've heard the word koinonia, fellowship. It's this idea of joint participation, a joint giftly contributed. I think of, I think of the Bakkins as they're heading out. They are jointly participating with others. They're jointly participating with Christ in the actual physical work of the gospel. They're going out and they're doing. Think of Ernie and Marie who spent many years doing that. Going out and doing the work of the gospel. This has brought joy. This has brought joy to Paul to see the active outworking of one's faith. You know, the Philippian church was living out their faith, as it says, with fear and trembling. You know, I think they were, they were a growing church. They were growing in the gospel. I think that they were, they were doing the service, and I think that they were sharing the gospel as they grew and grew in maturity. It goes on, Paul goes on to say, from the, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, they were consistent. You know, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I struggle with consistency. Sometimes it's consistency at home. Sometimes it's consistency at work and I hate to say it, but too many times is consistency in my walk with God. Am I consistent? Sometimes it's easy to put my foot on the accelerator, go, 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 and then, oh, I'm getting tired. Take my foot off a little bit. These guys were consistent. From the day of that Philippian jailer, that earthquake being broken out, these guys were consistently on mission with the gospel, fellowship, partaking, doing the work, sharing with each other, fellowshipping together, spending time with one another. They were running the race as to win. A runner in a marathon, they don't just necessarily go out in an instantaneous sprint, but they set a pace, a strong, steady pace that they can make it from beginning to end, going strong. And what does Paul say? He says in verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's just come out of your partnership in the gospel. You've kept on going. He says, it's almost like because of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. You know, I, I love this verse. To me, it's a promise. It reminds me of my assurance that I have in my salvation. 1 John 5, 11, and 12, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has a Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He goes on to say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so you may know that you have eternal life. The old has passed away, the new has come. You know, the completed work that Jesus is doing, I think it's, I think it's really threefold. It's what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and what God is doing through us. 
the idea of our salvation, that verse 5, that we're saved, that we're justified, we're made right before God. That's going to be completed on the day of Jesus Christ at absolute certainty. The idea of sanctification as we become more Christ-like, as God changes our heart, as he softens, as he melds, as he takes that heart of stone and squeezes it and softens it. Become more and more Christ-like. And the work that Christ has called us to do, the service he's called us to do, the work he's doing through us, reminded of, of James all about living out the gospel, doing the work of the ministry. And Paul goes on to say, it is right for me to feel this way. He's right to feel about th- this way about them. He's right to feel that he, God's going to complete those works in him because as I hold you in my heart, you are all partakers of, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Partakers. For you are all partakers of me with grace. This is the same basic word as fellowship. It's the idea of coming alongside, of doing. You know, and I think of grace. I can never forget a teaching I heard four or five years ago. We were at our, our Canadian ministry conference and a pastor by the name of Pete Nelson taught on grace. And he taught from Revelation chapter 22 where at the beginning of, the, of chapter 22 we see the, the throne of God in heaven and the river of life flowing from the throne of God and it goes out and it bears its fruit and the tree of life and so on and so forth. And this idea that grace is like a river. It starts from the highest of the high, the very throne of God above. And it flows down to the depths, to the lowest, dirtiest, worst parts of my life and my heart. And when I think of that completed work that Jesus is finishing, that, that changing nature of my heart, as I'm a partaker in that grace, fellowshipping in that grace, there's this idea that as I grow in the Lord, that I'm to reciprocate that grace whether that's going on the mission field and sharing to the lost tribes overseas, whether that's sharing with our coworkers, whether that's having grace for each other in our failings, whether that's having a grace to be good parents and husbands and wives. This idea of sharing, partaking, participating, the Darby translation says, participators in grace. You know, I don't deserve that grace. It's just that grace is that unmerited favor, right? We all know Romans 3.23 well, right? For the wages of sin is death. I don't deserve that grace. I don't deserve Jesus' work on the cross. I don't deserve his bloodshed for me. I don't deserve any of it. But because it has been given, I'm to extend it. You know, these people in, in Philippi, they were partakers of grace and they were graceful in, with Paul. They extended grace while he was in prison and they did the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They shared the gospel. Bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, I read a quote this week. It says, It's friends, or overthrows its foes, rather, 
and strengthens its friends. Paul goes on to say, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer for that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. You know, because of God's grace and grace re-extended, and this friendship that Paul had with these believers, he yearned to be with them. He yearned for them. If you ever read the King James, it says, I feel it's, the wording is, it longs for you in my bowels. The idea of of a physical longing to to share with, to spend time with. Uh, I know my my wife and I, we have friends, godly friends that uh, we don't see every day. We don't see every week. They don't necessarily live here. Uh, But I gotta tell you, some of these godly saints, when we think of them, we long to fellowship with them. Why? They encourage us in our faith and they're good friends. They spur us on. Spur us on towards love and good deeds. They abound in love. This idea of abounding in love is the idea of a bud, a flower bud. You get this little bud, right? I think of a dahlia, right? We kind of like dahlias. That's what we had at our wedding. So we kind of like dahlias. Not that we even have any at our house. But dahlia, the buds start off small, right? And the idea of abounding is that little kind of green, kind of boring, plain-looking bud. It opens up, and what happens? We start to see color. We start to see texture. We start to see beauty. And it grows. I mean, some of those dahlias, they get big. They're like, you know, they're huge. It's that abounding from something small something huge I think of a relationship our love as as we get to know one another our love starts small and it grows and as we grow and you know my wife and I have been married 10 years our, our, our feelings for each other have grown and they've changed they've matured this idea of growing and maturing just as I'm standing here talking I'm thinking of of as a plant matures when you have a young plant, you get small flowers. And as it grows, you get bigger flowers. And they abound and get larger and larger as our love grows for each other. So Paul's praying for his friends. He's saying, I pray that you may abound in love, that you may grow more and more in love, that you may grow in maturity. The bud of a flower. You know, it reminds me of the nature of our God. I'm always reminded, anytime I see the word abound, I'm always reminded of, of when God passes by Moses when he's hiding in the cleft of the rock. And what does God say about himself, his self-described nature? He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding. God's love just grows for us. It continues. It's this, huge, it's this idea of this, this beautiful thing. Dynamic, colorful, beautiful. It's funny. How, well, it's not funny. It's, it's just relevant and important how Paul mentions it. We know what Paul says in Corinthians 13 about what happens if we don't have love. It says, if I speak 
in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. Or a clanging cymbal. We all know what a cymbal sounds like when it's not played well. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so I can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I have nothing. We see that God demonstrated his own love for us in this way while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. An undeserved love. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God is our model for abounding love. Romans 5, 5 says, Christ poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. He has given us his Holy Spirit as deposit, as guarantee. Also to teach us, to show us, to help us to love as we ought to. I read it worded this way this week. It was not Paul's love through Christ, but Christ's love through Paul. Not my love through Christ, but Christ's love through me. So Paul prays that their, that their love may abound, that it may grow. But love coupled with knowledge and discernment. There's an interesting thing. When you have love and when you have knowledge, you get to have some discernment. As it all comes together, we, be, we fall into the working definition of wisdom. Sometimes we talk about wisdom being the correct application of knowledge. If I can know everything about everything, let's say, but I have no love to administer it well, to apply it well, I'm that bad-sounding symbol. May do more damage to one's ears than could. But if I have love, I'm part of with skill to correctly apply the knowledge God has given me. Paul says, so you may, you're abounding in love, grow more and more in that with knowledge and discernment, so you may approve what is excellent. The idea of, pro- of approve is like the idea of refining a metal, of proving it out, getting the impurities off. I was thinking about this in the context of what I do for a living. I used to work in a heavy engine shop uh, for heavy trucks, so you come in, you complain, my truck doesn't have enough power. What would we do? We would put it on the dyno, the dynamometer, where we could measure the power. Prove out if this does what it claims. And if it didn't, then we would have to resolve an issue or what have you. We also, if we did any major work to ensure that we correctly applied our knowledge, we put it on the dyno to prove it out. That's the idea that we may grow in love and knowledge and discern, that we may be able to prove out what is right, what is true, what is perfect, what is holy. And we know that the Lord gives us his spirit, right? Convict us in, us in the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. We cannot do this on our own. The idea of being able to, be, to prove something out so we may be able to be pure and blameless 
in the day of Christ so we can stand before the throne of God and say, and hear, well done, good and faithful son. I love the fruit of this love and knowledge and discernment applied to be able to prove out what's excellent. It's, Paul says, so you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. That we will grow in fruit and that our fruit will be righteousness, right standing before God. So we can be the opposite of the, hip, of the hypocrites, of the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12. Jesus addresses the Pharisees and says, you guys can see what's going on in the sky and say, oh, it's going to rain tomorrow, but you guys are unable to, to discern spiritual things. To be the opposite of that, to be able to prove out and understand what God's word is speaking to us. Hosea 10, 12 says, break up your fallow ground for it's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. When we seek the Lord, 2 Corinthians 9, he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. I can't be righteous on my own. With God's help, he can increase my righteousness. Increase my righteousness. So look at this passage. I say, well, how do, how do I grow in this? How do I increase? Increase my righteousness? How do I practically grow in love? How do I do this? What's the application? I have to ask myself am I fellowshipping with the gospel? Am I fellowshipping in grace? Am I re extending the grace that God has extended to me? Or am I holding it to myself? We're to be recipients and givers of grace, not just, part, not just takers, partakers, active. If that means that we're to help with our partner with God in ministry service, if that means our resources to stand behind missionaries, if that means that we're to go out and do, if that means that we're to just have some extra measure of grace for those around us. Fellowshipping with brothers. Fellowshipping with God. Fellowshipping in the message of the cross. Reciprocating the grace God's given us. That's my prayer, is that we would fellowship with God, that we would fellowship with one another, that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds, as it says in Hebrews that we would encourage one another in the faith, that we would share in the work of the gospel so that we can say with confidence that he will complete the good work he has begun in us. And I can say in the service part of that that he will complete the work he has set up for me. I know he's going to complete my salvation. That's not a question. But the service, I want to know that I'm going to that I'm going to be faithful in completing the task that he has put before me. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the gospel, Lord. I thank you that you've extended your grace to me and these people sitting here, Father.
Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, Father, who has not been a recipient of grace, Father, I pray that you would touch their heart, Lord, this morning. You would help them understand that and no one here deserves your grace more, more or less than they do, Father. And for those of us who know you, Lord, I pray that you would uh, just soften our hearts to see where we can fellowship with you in the gospel, Lord. And uh, We just thank you for your word. We thank you for this time this morning. In Jesus' name.